I welcome you to Lakeside Christian Church. If this is your first time here or you're a regular attender, we're all beginning together something new in a series in 1 Thessalonians. And if you have a Bible in front of you or you brought one with you, I invite you to open your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 17. We're beginning a series in 1 Thessalonians, but I'm asking you to turn to the book of Acts in chapter 17. 1 Thessalonians is recognized as Paul's first letter, and therefore actually the first letter and document of the whole New Testament. That if you were to turn uh, to the index of your Bible and look at how it's organized, it is organized initially by the chronology of events as they take place, and so it begins with the birth of John the Baptist and then Jesus and all that transpired in his life and then goes into the story of the church. But if the books were organized by which one was written first, then when we would open to our New Testament, 1 Thessalonians would be the first book that we would come to. It's often um, left out partially because simply its location in the New Testament canon. It's not at the beginning, nor is it at the beginning of Paul's own letters. And so it's just kind of stuck between the end of his, uh, his letters to the churches and then his pastoral epistles. And so oftentimes, if you, like me, grew up in the church, you maybe didn't hear much taught on or reflected in First Thessalonians, let alone to know it's the founding document of our New Testament. And so we're beginning a series, and it's called Beginning with the End because Paul begins. He writes this, his first letter primarily concerning the end or the return of Jesus. The return of Jesus is the culmination of history and it is a motivation for the church's mission. And Paul's first beginning letter is dominated by the importance and significance of the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and how the truth of his return should shape and influence everything we do as his followers. Now, before we go into 1 Thessalonians, it's helpful to have a bit of a background, and to do that, we can go to a place like Acts 17 and hear the story of how the gospel message was first brought to this city. And so we're going to read here in the beginning from Acts a little bit from 1 Thessalonians, and then a little bit from Philippians in order to give us a sense of the background behind this first letter of the Apostle Paul. So if you will, follow along as we read from Acts 17 and verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous 
and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now I'll invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Paul says of his coming to Thessalonica, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. And now I'll ask you to turn backwards a bit to Philippians chapter 4 and verses 14 to 16. And Paul, writing to the Philippians, says this about his time in Thessalonica. Yet it was kind of you to share my troubles. And you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, 
you sent me help for my needs once and again. And with the conclusion of those three portions, I'll ask you to land in Acts 17. That's where we'll spend the majority of our time. And hopefully it will become quickly evident why we've looked at these three passages in trying to get a bit of the background information of the city of Thessalonica and Paul's ministry there. Our sermon will follow a pretty simple outline of of three categories, the city, the strategy, and the story. The city of Thessalonica, the strategy of Paul, and the story behind this letter that we know as 1 Thessalonians. So if you're taking notes or if it's just helpful for you to think in larger categories, we're first going to talk about the city, then the strategy, and then the story. Thessalonica was a city politically that enjoyed some independence. It was the Roman capital of Macedonia, of the province of Macedonia. It was the capital city. And for a fairly prolonged period of time before Paul arrived, this city had enjoyed peace. Most of the difficulty and the wars and the battles that were being experienced at that time by the Roman Empire were on the fringes of the empire. But Thessalonica was relatively a place at peace. And so they enjoyed, unlike some other cities of their day, a relative amount of independence. They got to do what they wanted to do because they weren't causing any trouble for anybody higher up than them. Culturally, they were progressive. They were, even though now ruled predominantly by the Romans, were influenced culturally by the Greeks. And they were a progressive city. And as we saw in Acts 17, it was a place where wealth was shared. And some of the boundaries in that day were maybe positions of power and authority were only available to men in a city like Thessalonica, some of those boundaries were broken down. It says that of Paul's first converts, there was not a few of the leading women of the city, that there was power and wealth and authority and property fairly well distributed among men and women in the day in this particular city. And so they were politically independent, they were culturally progressive, and they were economically prosperous. It was a port city, that from which a huge land route in the Roman Empire began. And because of that, commerce and trade were happening. Business was booming in this city. Because there weren't battles going on, there was no internal conflict politically, um, there was education going on, advancement for a variety of people, things were going well economically for these people. And spiritually, it was vibrant. If you went to this city and said, do people here worship or not? You just said, they really worship. They have gods all over the place. And they celebrate these gods. They have all these festivals, week-long parties, celebrating a variety of gods that they serve, that they pay honor to. And some of their gods... They would look back to some of the previous rulers of the Roman Empire and say that they have become gods. So that if you would have come as a visitor, if you and I could have gotten off the ship and entered into the city and looked around, we would have said, 
considering the world this day, this is a pretty good place to live. Politically, they're enjoying a lot of freedom. Culturally, they're progressive. There's opportunities available here that aren't available in other places. This is a great place to open up a shop and to do business. You you, you can have confidence in the trade that goes on here. And spiritually, these people are willing to explore ideas and, and, and new ways of worship. Almost that depending on what our idea of the good life is, we would have come to this city and said, they don't need the gospel. They seem to be doing just fine and experiencing the good life. Now for those of you who understand what the gospel is, what I just said makes you a little bit uncomfortable. Because we as Christians don't define the good life as purely political freedom or being culturally progressive or economically prosperous. But if we allow those kind of superficial things which do in our day and age really shape what we think the good life is, we would have come to this city and said, they seem to have it together. We need to go somewhere else where these kind of things are not being experienced. But it was a city that enjoyed a good amount of what we even today would define as the good life. But for Paul, in his understanding of what the gospel was and what the implications were, when he came to this city, he saw it just as in need of the gospel as any other place he had been. Because our primary struggle and our primary need is not political, it's not economic, and it's not cultural. It's moral and spiritual. We can be politically free and economically prosperous, but still looking in the mirror at a soul that is a slave to sin. Still not set free to the biggest battle that we encounter in spite of the general prosperity that we're feeling all around us. That we know that we struggle with an enemy and an enemy within that these things might be able to help or aid in but ultimately can never set us free from our primary struggle and battle. And if anything, sometimes we don't realize our need of the gospel when these things are present. Because we look around and say, if all of these things are in place, they have a way of masking a deeper need that is internal in each and every one of our human hearts. That there is a God who made us and before whom we will stand to give an account. And how will we on that day have confidence before him? But that is the reality that shapes everything. And so Paul, when he comes, so that's a bit of the city and now the strategy of Paul. When he comes, as Luke records for us in Acts, he's got a strategy in place. And I submit to you it's sort of threefold. There's the synagogue, the shop, 
and the home, the synagogue, the shop, and the home. First, he goes to one of these places of worship. Paul sees that spiritual conversations are going on. So he doesn't have the burden of trying to create them. He recognizes the responsibility to go to where this conversation is taking place and trying to say something that isn't being said. People are opening up a book, they're reading it, and they're saying, what does this mean, and what does this say about life? And so Paul goes there, and he goes there, it says, three Sabbaths in a row, and he reasons with them, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, and then, in persuading them of that, to identify that this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ for whom it was necessary to suffer. So Paul goes to the synagogue. He says, where are people talking about God? Once I identify that, that's where I need to go. I need to join the conversation. But the conversation is already going on. Then the shop. Where are the majority of people spending their time. And in this city, it's in the marketplace. This is an urban area. It's not primarily made up of farmers. This is a a hub. This is a port city where a lot of trade and commerce is coming place. So when we think of what we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul said to them, when I came to you, I didn't come with a pretext for greed, and I didn't make demands upon you which I could have made as an apostle. What Paul is talking about there is finances. He's saying, when I came to you and shared the gospel and a church was formed, I did not immediately ask to live off of the offering and the giving that took place in the church. But he said, I worked night and day so that I would not be a burden to you. That means is when Paul entered this city, he went to the synagogue to go where the conversation was already taking place, and then he set up a shop. He set up a business. He might have been able to get at one and the same time a place to live, maybe an apartment on top and a shop on bottom. But for him, the question is, what can I do that will give me the most amount of interaction with the people in this city? And it was setting up a shop. And so he was a tent maker. He had a craft and he developed it. And so when we put together what we read in Acts 17 and what we, put, what we read in 1 Thessalonians, we see Paul was probably there for a period of a couple months Luke and Acts gives us the beginning and the end, but we don't have a sense of how long he might have been there. When we read in 1 Thessalonians that he had to take the time to set up a shop to start working, it gives us a sense that that probably happened more than just the first three weeks that Luke's records for us. Then when we read in Philippians that Paul thanks the Philippians for providing him some resources, some finances, While he was in Thessalonica, we look and say, again, he would have had to have been there for at least a couple of months. For him to be in Thessalonica, the message to get to the believers in Philippi and the resources to come back, all of that would have taken time. You can't jump on a plane and you can't wire someone funds. So all of this presumes a certain amount of time where Paul's strategy 
of going to the synagogue, being where the people are at, and then setting up a shop so that he can interact with the most amount of people all presumes a certain amount of time. But we see that even in Paul's setting up of his shop, his primary motivation was ministry. He wasn't setting up shop to make as much money as he possibly could. He saw it as a way to connect with other people. So much so that eventually he had to be bivocational because he wasn't making enough money off of his shop and he needed support from the believers in Philippi. For him, for Paul, he had this missional mindset that this shop, this work that I'm doing is a way of connecting to other people. And so there was the synagogue, the shop, and then the home. Once there was a positive interaction or response from the people, then the question is, where can meaningful relationships be established? And for Paul and the believers, and for us today, it is still true It is easiest for meaningful relationships to happen in the context of the home. And so we see that when these people who are so angry at Paul and the success that he's getting in the response of the gospel, they want to find him, what do they do? They go to Jason's house. The believers at that time didn't all of a sudden start constructing their own building and saying, you have your synagogue, we have our church. They were meeting primarily in homes with other people people, doing studies together of God's word in an intimate environment where they could truly get to know one another. And that was his strategy, going where the conversation of God was already happening, and in that day the synagogue was one of those places, being where the majority of people were, and that included setting up a shop so that he could interact with people in the marketplace and then engaging them in the personal and intimate context of a home setting. And so that's the city, that's the strategy. Now the story of 1 Thessalonians is Paul actually enjoys some success. People respond positively to the message that he brings. It says that some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So as Paul comes to this city and he doesn't allow any of the prosperity, any of the success, any of the independence to prevent him from bringing the gospel, he brings the gospel to the people, they respond, and a church is born. A church, a group of people meeting together, worshiping Jesus, is starting to form. And yet the success of Paul led to opposition. Look at what it says in verse 6 or verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. So here are these people who've had the opportunity to engage Paul directly. They've heard him explaining, reasoning, and proving. And they're upset. They're so upset that they're, they're looking around and they're saying, we want to cause some trouble. We need some, some guys that just don't have a lot of standards. And if we ask them to punch somebody, they'll punch somebody. And we ask them to set something on fire, they'll set something on fire. Where do we find a group of guys like this? And so they go to whatever part of town they could have gone in that day and say, hey guys, anybody want to cause some trouble? Yeah! Anybody want to knock something over? Sure! 
okay, we need your help for a second. But they come and they gather together this group of what Luke describes as wicked men and they form a mob and they start making noise in the city. And here, a group of believers meeting quietly, trying to get to know one another personally and intimately in a home, are attacked. The door's kicked in. Maybe a window is broken. And they want to know right now, where is Paul and Silas? Where are those who came into this city and started proclaiming this message? They didn't come just wanting a little bit more information. You know, Paul, he was making a pretty good case. We'd like to hear him describe it a little bit more. No, they were hostile to the gospel. And so they came and attacked the believers. And the believers weren't there, and that wasn't good enough. So they take Jason, who is this person at that time that is himself enjoying some of the fruit of the prosperity of this city because he has a house big enough to host the believers. I mean, you just have to have a house of a certain size if you're going to have a group of 20 to 30 people meeting inside your home. Jason had this kind of a house. So he was doing fairly well economically. He could host a church in his house. And then when they got dragged before the city officials, Jason had to put up the money so that all everybody could go home. So he was, uh, if you will, a financer behind this early church. And notice what the message is that they're accused of before the city officials. This we receive in verses 6 and 7. They drag them, violently take them by force before the city authorities, shouting, these men who've turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. These Jews and these city's officials realized that when Paul came with a message, the message that he brought was not just one other God who could be added to the list of gods that everybody was already enjoying in their worship. But that if what Paul was saying was true, it changed everything about the way they lived their life. If what Paul was saying was true, there was going to be no more week-long ceremony celebrating this God and, and some huge athletic event thrown celebrating this God and all the power that Rome represented was, was just a drop in the bucket compared to the power of one who came from heaven to earth, conquered the grave, rose again, and will come back again. If what Paul's saying is true, it changes everything. It turns the world upside down. It's not just a message that you add on to your life, that you experiment with for a period of time. If you believe it and if you accept it, it ought to change everything. The implications are not just personal, and we live in a day and age where so much of what we believe is relegated to the area of being private and personal, where we say to people or we have people say to us, I understand you have convictions and you have beliefs and you have a church that maybe you go to, 
But as long as you keep that to yourself, and it's your own personal convictions, and you don't bring it out here into the public, we're fine. I don't really care what you believe, and hopefully you don't care what I believe. But for Paul, his personal faith was in a Jesus who was going to return in a very public way. And so he couldn't compartmentalize. He couldn't separate and say, this is just for me in my quiet time and it's my coping mechanism. No, that's not what the gospel was for Paul. It was a truth that he encountered that all of history would culminate in the return of Jesus, that there is another king and the king is not Caesar and it's not Caesar's son, it's God and God's son. And that king is the one before whom all of us will have to stand. And when you hear that and you say, I see how that might have made some people uncomfortable. I see how that might have made some people angry, wanting and looking for a mob of people to gather together. And so Paul and Silas, effective in their presentation of the gospel, now, it says in verse 10, have to sneak out at nighttime. These people are so hot against them, so angry, that they have to sneak out of the city. And so they do. Jason stays, the believers stay. There is a church, but the pastor's gone. And he goes on to this next city and he just continues the strategy. He does what Paul does and he goes to the synagogue. He goes where the conversations are happening. But when some of the people from Thessalonica, verse 13, learned that that's what he was doing, they came there and started agitating again, started getting the city in an uproar. And so Paul has to sneak out of that city and make his way to Athens. But so here's Paul. His success in spreading the gospel has led to opposition. That opposition has forced him to flee to another city. But he realizes that doesn't satisfy the violent hunger of his oppressors. And so they come after him again. And now he has to leave again. And it's easy to imagine that Paul is sitting there and saying, if they're doing this to me, if they hate me this much and the message that I'm bringing, I wonder what's happening to the people who accepted the gospel. What is happening to those Jews and Greeks, those leading women, all of those people who received this message and this gospel, if they're so mad at me that they're willing to come to another city to push me out of that city, what's happening to them? And now I invite you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2 and 3 and you'll see kind of what Paul is thinking. He doesn't know. There's no internet. There's no phone service. He can't just call and say, hey, how are you guys doing? Are they still kicking in your homes? Are they still destroying your times of worship? And if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 17, Paul says what is described in Acts. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, In person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. Paul was torn away from this church that he helped plant and that he helped love. And then you look at the beginning of chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, 
We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of God, to establish and exhort you in your faith. And then verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, and he has brought us the good news. This is the context and the story behind 1 Thessalonians. Paul, in reaching out to this city, now being torn away from it, wondering what is happening to them, says to the extent that he could bear it no longer, asked one of his primary helpers to leave him alone, to go to them and to get a report and to come back and share that report to him. And now as Paul hears that, he wants to write a letter to these believers. This letter is 1 Thessalonians, and it's what we will be diving into for the weeks to come. Will you kneel with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we... We come before you and ask that you would give us a big view of you and your gospel, of its message, that the truth of who you are and what you've done, and that you are coming back for each and every one of us, would change the way we think and do everything. And we pray that as we spend time together as a family looking into your word and seeing how one of the first apostles spoke to a church about how to live life in light of your return, that everything he encouraged of those believers we would be encouraged in that our lives would be lived in light of your return. Father, help us to dig deeper, to know you more, and to reach out in the ways that Paul did. Father, help us to join the conversations that are going on all around us, that we would not look at the prosperity or the independence that is around us and think these people don't need the gospel but that you would give us the heart, the eyes, the mission of Paul to say that we all need to hear the good news of your redemption, your power, and its ability to transform our lives. Father, we pray that you be our teacher, that you take your word and plant it deep in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.